Jude verse 4 reads, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Within our our time we spent for several weeks examining Jude verse 3, I had pointed out that this verse, that is verse 3, includes three truths regarding this matter of the faith as Jude declares. Let's review that for just a moment as we consider then, of course, verse 4, because it's going to lead us into uh, this truth. First of all, we saw that believers must personally engage the faith. We are earn it to earnestly, it says, contend. And this exhortation, of course, is one of personal engagement, personal involvement. Then believers are, number two, pers- to personally defend the faith, earnestly contend, he says. And this exhortation is for one to completely commit oneself to understanding the truth of the depths of the faith and knowledge of Christ as he is revealed in his word, that he might also properly defend that said truth. Jude explained this in the latter part of this epistle in verse 20 when he stated, Beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. And I mentioned last week to you, or a week or so ago, that the faith to which Jude refers to in verse 3 as the faith he refers to as your most holy faith in concluding this epistle. And there's a reason he does so, obviously. It's not, and we must recognize this truth, the faith is never personalized, but it is always personal for those who come to Christ. So it's not that faith is subjective. It's not personalized for us. It is the faith, the being a, def- a definite article, the definite article meaning that it is, a, it is talking about that which is specific that is, which is this one thing, not, uh, not a thing or a faith. No, it is the faith. So it's not personalized, nor is it subjective in any manner. However, he says, building up yourselves uh, upon, or building up yourselves on your most holy faith, your most holy faith. Now, this, of course, is, is that this faith is, is personal, and the faith by which we come to Christ is, as I explained, uh, I believe, last week to you, that when we come to Christ, we come to Christ, of course, by faith, by grace through faith, and the faith which we receive to believe God, that each of us could stand tonight and give a, a plethora of different or, or variations of our quote-unquote testimony of faith. In other words, how we came to Christ, what it was in our lives the Lord did, what age we came to Christ, how the Lord worked in humbling us and convicting us and bringing us to, uh, to belief in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we all have personal, if you will, testimonies of how we have come to saving faith and grace in Christ. However, it's the same grace and same faith by which we are brought to this belief and to salvation and it is the same faith which we are birthed into, and that is the faith which is spoken of here. So again, we, there, is a, there is the faith which is not personalized or subjective, but every one of us who've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, this faith becomes very personal to us. It is not just something that's out there that we view casually or we should never view casually, but it's very personal. So while the scriptures testify to the importance of identifying with Christ and those who identify with him and instruct believers, the scriptures instruct us to point out those who would disguise themselves as ministers of the gospel and yet they are not, the scriptures never call us 
to allow preferences and opinions to become divisive among those who are of the faith. And that brings us to that thought. The third thought in verse 3 is that we are, as believers, to personally acknowledge the exclusivity of the faith. This is not many faiths. This is the faith. And so we are to embrace this faith. And we are to understand as believers that we are made part of this faith And as I mentioned last week, there are what we might refer to as non-negotiables of the faith, meaning that though there are things that are not black and white in Scripture, and there are many things that are not black and white in Scripture, and there are many differences as far as our understanding on many of those things, but none of those things are foundational to salvation, to the person and work of Christ, to uh, the, the black and white truths stated within the Word of God. So there are, black and, there are things that are black and white, and there are things which are not black and white. And I find it very interesting that often within the church, rather than us, as Paul says, I believe in Philippians, that we are striving together for the faith of the gospel because we have adversaries that are going to come up against this truth of the gospel and the faith. But it's so interesting today that it seems as though that many within the church appear to be more interested in striving against one another concerning the matters that are not black and white that are taught throughout Scripture or referenced in Scripture that may not be as clearly defined and are not, are not fundamental or foundational to salvation or foundational, again, concerning the deity of Christ, the person and work of Christ, and yet they will exert more effort in arguing and fighting within themselves over these things than they will standing together in that which is clearly taught and the faith as defined in Scripture. I told you last week, it's very interesting, we'll get to this in a moment, that the faith did not have to be defined by Jude, it did not have to be defined by James, it did not have to be defined by Paul nor Peter in terms of when they speak about the faith in this regard, but everyone to whom they were writing understood what they were speaking of or writing of. And furthermore, the very, the very charge to defend that faith was also an exhortation concerning that faith and explanation of that faith itself. So within the exhortation of the faith, you find the explanation of that faith. In other words, I mean this. Paul would say something along these lines, would he not? That we are not to um, be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Remember that? He told Timothy that he was not to give himself over to these things, and he began to list things, but rather to take that which he had been taught and instructed in by Paul himself, even among many witnesses, and he was then to take that same truth and teach that to others who would be faithful also. So the point of being that that was understood, he was talking about these absolutes concerning the person and work of Christ and the salvific work and foundation of faith upon which we stand. And so it, it, it's important that we, we recognize that, and that the Scriptures never call us to become divisive concerning preferences and opinions uh, among those who are of the faith. Now again, listen please, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. If someone does not believe that which is clearly taught in Scripture concerning the person of Christ, the work of Christ, salvation by grace through faith, not works. If someone does not believe that Jesus is Lord, that He has always been, 
He is an eternal being, but yet was manifested in the fullness of time in the flesh. But he was not created. He was already, and yet he manifested himself in the flesh, being born of Mary, the virgin birth. And so these are things that we understand, and that there is, of course, um, the, the inherent sinful nature of man. We went over many of these things, and we'll review them again in just a moment. But the fact of the matter is that there are these non-negotiables that if you do not believe these things, you are obviously, adamantly standing against the clear teaching of the foundation of the person and work of Christ, the very reason he came and so on. So as we consider the faith, and you might ask again as we looked at last week and attempted to answer this question, what is the faith? Well, the faith is God's revelation of himself and his truth to man. That's really what it is. And so the faith is the objective truth of God. And throughout time, men have attempted to help distinguish between those who would hold the faith and those who would pervert the faith, as Scripture even commands us to do, by providing, again, what I like to refer to as non-negotiables, if you would, or non-negotiable truths of the faith. So what are these non-negotiables? Just to name some. Now, some people say there's four, five, six, seven, what have you. Here's just some. First of all, belief in God, which, and we went into more detail into this last week, but just to, again, just review briefly, belief in God, which is to say His very being, and more specifically, his being as he has declared himself to be within his word. So it's, it's not just saying, I believe there is a God out there somewhere. No, but understanding, believing the truth of who God has declared himself to be. Second, belief in the fallen sinful nature of man. Man was, uh, was created sinless, that is true. And yet, man fell to sin in the garden. And now that sinful nature is inherent with every, within every man. If you think about it like this, if you would, with me, if, if the, there's not inherent sinful nature within man, then uh, that means that possibly someone could actually go to heaven apart from Jesus because there's no sin in him. No, all men are sinful. And that's clearly taught throughout Scripture. And, and we are even iniquity as Scripture teaches. So, and in sin did my mother conceive me, David said. So we find that there is this sinful fallen nature of man. Number three, the belief in the person of, of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the fullness of the Godhead in the flesh. Jesus is divine. Again, he was not created, but he is eternal and was made manifest in the flesh in the fullness of time. Four, belief in the atoning work of Jesus. Jesus was sent by the Father embracing humanity in his flesh that he, being sinless, might die as God's atonement for the sin of man or for sinful man. Five, belief in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died, but he physically rose victoriously over death on the third day after being buried. He came, manifested himself in the flesh, lived a sinless life in the flesh, died upon the cross in the flesh and then rose victoriously in the flesh in a now having a glorified body. And then six, belief in the eternal state of mankind. As I've said so many times, one will either be born twice and die once or one will be born once and die twice. But regardless, there is an eternal state of mankind. And so last week I pointed your attention to examples of the teaching of faith. And we didn't read all of these, of course, for sake of time. But I would encourage you to write them down look through them yourselves if you've not worked through these at any other time or have not been with us as we've studied through these at some point in time. But you see that there are examples of the teaching of the faith and exhortation to defend the faith. Galatians, the entire book, that is foundational. Why is that? Because what is the whole problem? Again, just briefly mentioning, the Judaizers were coming into the churches of Galatia to these Gentile churches, Gentile believers, And they were saying, you need Jesus plus circumcision. You have to embrace Judaism if you really want to know God. Well, 
Paul referenced that in the beginning chapters as what? Another gospel, which is not another, but rather one that is perverted, a perverting of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is the faith. That's what it is. The faith is that of the gospel. And yet he speaks of this other gospel, this perversion. First Timothy chapter 4, read the whole chapter. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 5 specifically. Second Peter chapters 2 and 3. And in the book of James. And of course, you can read Jude as well. In the following verses, Jude explains the reason, especially verse 4, he explains the reason it was necessary for him to write concerning this issue of the faith and the believer's responsibility to engage and defend the faith. Verse 4, read with me again. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Within this verse alone, we find Jude's explanation for the urgency which he expressed concerning his exhortation for his readers in verse 3 to earnestly contend for the faith. Remember, he said, I desired to write unto you, however, it was needful for me to write unto you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. So he says there's an urgency that is present that I write unto you. And if we are to understand the important exhortation provided by Jude in verse 3, it also requires us to understand the gravity of his explanation for the reason he felt such an urgency to exhort the reader to defend the faith, which he provides for the reader in verse 4, this explanation. Let's begin by looking at the first portion of verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares. Simon Peter, Paul, and Jesus foretold of such men. Those who would come in teaching heresy in the church. There would be those who would infiltrate the church under false pretense, claiming to be of the faith, and yet they were nothing more than false teachers attempting to pervert the church and pervert the truth. The fact that they came in unaware simply is implying that they infiltrated the church and they did so unnoticed. And let me say this to you. It, one reason that is so easily done, there, there's always tares among the wheat. We understand that. But yet one reason that was so easily accomplished is if there are people within the body of Christ who are not rooted and grounded themselves in the truth of Christ in the faith then it will not be difficult for someone to come in with convincing speech, persuading words, and influence and impact or mislead and deceive. Now, we know the Spirit of God is within us, and we understand that He teaches us truth, but do not misunderstand that it is also commanded of us to be diligent in the Scriptures and to grow in the knowledge and faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, as I mentioned a moment ago, that we be not henceforth tossed about by every wind of doctrine. So the point of the matter is, it is possible for believers to be convinced of heresy or heretical teaching. It is possible for believers to be persuaded. It is possible for believers, if they are not rooted and grounded, to be tossed about. That is a possibility, and Scripture clearly teaches that. Now, I believe that will only go so far, and God will absolutely correct that. But while out to go on at all, 
Why would we not be rooted and grounded in the faith with understanding and discernment spiritually that we might know truth and hence recognize error? And so they came in unawares. Paul wrote of deceivers in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15. We read this last week. For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. In these three verses, it's very interesting. Most people really focus on verse 14. And what's really interesting in the passage is that verse 14 is just there to clarify and substantiate the fact that this happens with false teachers. He's saying Satan himself appears as no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. That statement is made not so we get more insight on who Satan is. The statement is made so that we recognize the false teachers sandwiched in which this statement is sandwiched between. Go back to verse 13. For such are false prophets. This isn't talking about Satan. This is talking about men. Such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Did they literally become the apostles of Christ? No. They are living and acting in such a manner and saying such things to deceive people into believing that they are truly prophets of God. They are truly teachers and apostles of Christ. And boy, oh boy, does that go on today. And then the next statement is, hey, it's no marvel. Why would you be surprised that this happens? And isn't it interesting that even within the church today, so many are not rooted and grounded enough themselves that if Jesus is name-dropped, they're scared to speak out anything. Oh, well, they said Jesus, so they must be... Te-. No, that is not necessarily true. And so the fact of the matter is, uh, Paul is saying... This should not surprise you that there are false apostles of Christ, those who would appear to be or claim to be apostles of Christ, and they are not. Verse 15, therefore, if, a, if, if there are false prophets who are deceitful workers who transform themselves as though they are apostles of Christ, and why is that such a, a surprising thing to you when Satan himself appears as an angel of light? Therefore, because this is true, It is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. So now he's saying they appear as though they are ministering righteousness, but their end shall be according to their works, he says. Peter wrote a false teacher, 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness they shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Jesus warned of wolves in sheep clothing. He said that deceivers would attempt to teach false doctrine and destroy the flock of God. Matthew 7.15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Paul expounded on the warning provided by Jesus in Acts 20, 28-30. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. This is Paul speaking to the 
elders from the church or churches of Ephesus. And he is saying to them, look, this is the last time I'm going to see you. And he's saying, beware, because when I leave, this is what's going to happen. There are going to be wolves in sheep's clothing who come in. And even among you, there will be those who rise up who are going to seek disciples after themselves. By the way, that is one good indicator. That is a tremendous indicator. Not the only one, but that is one tremendous indicator of one who is a false teacher when they are seeking to gather their own disciples to follow them. I understand what Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. But what was Paul saying there? He wasn't making his own disciples. He was saying, as I am following Jesus, do the same. And the whole point is, if one is truly following Christ and desires to point others to Christ, he will not seek to have his own disciples and his own gathering, his own following that lives after him. So while these examples I've just mentioned are not all in all exhaustive, all the scriptures in the matter of false prophets, these passages do provide us with clear understanding of those who would pervert the truth and attempt to deceive others. We move on in verse 4. Who were or before or of old ordained to this condemnation? Ungodly men. These were men who were intentional in their mission to deceive others. As defined, these were ungodly men. The description that they were before of old ordained to this condemnation implies that it was prophesied of such men who would commit these damnable acts, and as well what their condemnation would be or that they would be condemned. And the judgment is mentioned in both Paul's and Peter's writings, which were previously referenced. 2 Corinthians 11.5, notice what it says again. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. But notice what he states next. Whose end shall be according to their works. Then 2 Peter 2.3, And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. So both Paul and Peter here reference the fact that they are going to be, they are, they are condemned men and they are judged men. Jude continued, verse 4, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Now the noun lasciviousness means licentiousness, and licentiousness refers to a lack of moral restraint. Furthermore, licentiousness implies a willingness to ignore law, to ignore rules, to ignore standards. And the word licentiousness, as well as the word license, as we understand it, are both taken from the root word licentia, which means freedom. So I said all that to show you the, the, somewhat of the etymology of the word to help you a little bit to bring you to this understanding. Turning the grace of our God into freedom. But not freedom from sin. Because the word lasciviousness again, meaning licentiousness, which means a lack of moral restraint. So when he says turning the grace of God into freedom, it's not saying, oh, we are free by the grace of God. No, no, no. It's not saying we are free from sin by the grace of God. No, turning the grace of God into a freedom to sin. And this is heretical, without question. With this understanding of the meaning of the word lasciviousness, and that from which the word is rooted, 
we can safely conclude that these false teachers were teaching the damnable heresy that God's grace provides you a license to sin. Now you understand, Scripture adamantly, clearly speaks to the contrary. Yet, nonetheless, such heresy is still being propagated by many today. Those who would pervert the grace of God as though the purpose of grace... Hear me closely, please, because this is very important. If you view grace as though it is simply a freedom for you to sin, then you view the purpose of grace as though it was provided as simply or only a means to cover your sin rather than this is the grace provided to transform your life from a life of sin. The power of the grace of God, the goodness, unmerited favor, and kindness of God in the person of Christ is not, oh, I did what I wanted to and I still do what I want to, but I'm going to heaven now. No. The power of the gospel is that it transforms our lives and puts within us the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is now the greatest desire of our lives is that righteousness be lived out of our lives. It is now, do we still sin? Of course. And don't misunderstand me. Thank God for grace. Even in our sin. But a believer is to never view grace as though it is freedom to sin, we should always see it as freedom from sin. From its power, from its condemnation, from its bondage, from its misery. Within his epistle of Romans, Paul addressed both the sufficiency of God's grace to forgive us, regardless of the abundance of our sin, and the sufficiency of God's grace to deliver us from the power of sin. I want to put these verses together for you because they're so closely affiliated. If you look in Romans chapter 5, let's first look at verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And all of us rejoice in that truth, do we not? For where sin was abundant, God's grace is more abundant. And so we can truly rejoice in the fact that God's grace is greater than our sin. And yes, we rejoice in that. We must rejoice in that. And gladly do. But then look at verse 21. That, or so that, as sin hath reigned unto death... Even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So, sin brought death. Grace brings eternal life and righteousness. But then look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Wait a minute. What shall we say then in relation to what? What shall we say then to the abundance of grace that supersedes and exceeds our sin so that where we were bound to death because of sin, now we are given life eternal and righteousness because of grace, then what shall we say then to these things? So what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 
How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? See, the Scripture carefully and clearly explains here that grace is to never, in any way, to be, it is never to be viewed as license to sin, as freedom to sin. While it is true that God's grace is sufficient to forgive us regarding our sin, it is not a provision for us to commit or to continue in sin. This is clearly spoken against in Scripture. Romans 6, 14 through 15, just verses later in Romans 6. Paul goes on to explain, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And what does it say again? God forbid. See the perversion now of those Jude speaks of who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness or into licentiousness or into freedom to sin. Freedom to absolute immoral, amoral activity, actions. This is the matter of which Jude speaks. Jude then concludes his description of these false prophets with the strongest claim against them. Notice what he says. Denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the word denying here means, the verb denying means to deny, to repudiate, and to disown. Those who teach that grace is a license or freedom to sin are guilty in reality of denying and rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, how can you say that? What do you mean by that? Well, think of it like this for a moment. God's grace, by definition, is the unmerited goodness, unearned goodness, unmerited goodness, and favor of God. And to, so for what to make such a claim that God had determined before time to provide the life of his son, our Lord Jesus, so that we could simply continue in a lifestyle of sin without consequence eternally, is to grossly pervert and grossly marginalize the sacrifice that our Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus has made. Furthermore, the Scriptures repeatedly teach us that we are to live according to the grace we have received and the call of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. So here's the question. Did God redeem us simply so we can now be free to sin without eternal consequence? Is that why we're redeemed? Of course not. Then to live accordingly is not to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Colossians 1, 9 and 10, Paul wrote, For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 2, 6, As ye therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, as ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. So for one to teach others or live life in an example of using grace to excuse sin is completely against, anti the grace of God. And what's more, it's anti and against purpose for such which grace has been given. Furthermore, righteousness while using grace as an excuse is ultimate denial 
rejection of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So how, how, how do you come to that conclusion? Well, follow me for a moment. If we are called out of sin unto Christ, and we are told to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called, and we are told that we are to walk a, a, a worthy of God, meaning according to that which God has done in our lives, of course, and walk according to this provision of Christ and walk in Him. If all of this is true, and yet we walk differently, and we are using the grace which calls us to God as a means or excuse or a license or freedom to live anti-scriptural truth, anti-example of Christ, anti-the Spirit of God dwelling within us, anti-scripture, if we are to live our lives in such a way then we are usurping our authority over that of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, which means we are rejecting, repudiating, disowning, and denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why Judas so harshly warning against these who would do such and speaking of them in such a way. From a examination of Jude's explanation in verse 4. We understand the weight of Jude's exhortation to defend the faith along with the urgency to do so as he described in verse 3. Now let me pause here for a moment because this is important for us to understand. Defending the faith is not you becoming obnoxious about your quote-unquote professed convictions or quote-unquote professed standards or quote-unquote professed uh, extra biblical beliefs. So this does not mean that we are to strive against one another who are truly of the faith. No, it means that we are to defend the truths of God and His Word as He has revealed Himself, and that which is clearly defined, clearly stated without any misunderstanding, without any possibility of misinterpreting when reading contextually and studying contextually the Scriptures in their consistency, in their, their fluid manner in which these truths are conveyed and communicated. We are to defend those truths. And if someone is not a believer in these truths, they are not of the faith. Not, again, our standards, our beliefs, our preferences, our opinions. That has nothing to do with any of this. And again, it's, it's quite sad today that people are so ignorant truly of the faith that they then think striving among other believers and striving with other genuine believers because they do not see things exactly like them and letting that become divisive among them is somehow defending the faith and really struggling and suffering for the cause of Christ. But that's absolutely untrue. Now again, I mentioned this last week. I again want to say this so there's no misunderstanding. Just as we are commanded to defend the faith, we are also commanded, as John does in his epistle, that we are to not even give Godspeed to those who are teaching false perversions of the gospel or of Christ. Those who are anti-Christ. We're not to give them Godspeed. We're not to bless them on their way. He says, else we become an accomplice in what they're doing. So we are 
to call out those who are not preaching and teaching the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let us do so with boldness and as well in a sense of grace, understanding that where we would be exactly where they are were not for God's grace and spirit dwelling with us and teaching us. So thank God for that. But yet we're to call out those who would proclaim heresy and perversions of the truth. But that does not mean that we are to be combative with those who embrace the faith and those who hold to the faith and those who live in the faith. There is an ardent attack against the faith and it is the responsibility of the church to personally engage, embrace, and defend the faith. And the church has been given the tremendous responsibility to defend the exceeds the hatred of those who oppose the Lord and His truth. Our passion for Christ, our desire to know of Him, to learn of Him, to follow Him, our our love for His truth and to know His truth should far exceed any of those, of the hatred of any of those who are the enemies of the gospel. It is our duty, it is our responsibility, it is our privilege to contend for the faith. And it is, there's an urgency for us to do so, to be prepared to do so, because the attacks are real, and the attacks are well-formed and organized, And the attacks are well-grounded, though upon false premise. And so it is imperative that we then understand the teaching of Scriptures and these absolutes that are clearly taught throughout Scripture and that we are ourselves engaging in the study of the Scriptures, committing ourselves to God's Word, that we be rooted and grounded in Christ and in His truth. Again, I will say this to you to clarify. It is not important that you have an answer for every single question that's asked unto you. What is important is that you can redemptively answer any question that is asked. In other words, when someone asks you a question, it not manipulate the question and not manipulate the person. That is not at all what is being taught nor what I am saying. I am saying, and let me explain to you, when someone asks you a question concerning the faith, you should be able to answer that redemptively. I want to give you an example briefly of what I'm talking about. I had someone ask me a question not too long ago, and they were truly probing me, asking me questions that were sincere questions. And some of them, if you were to ask them alone by themselves out of the context of our conversation, it would seem like a very foolish question to ask, and it'd be like, oh, this person is just wanting just to, to you know, talk nonsense. But that's not what it was at all. They were actually questioning, seeing where I was and wanting to have some answers. And one question was asked to me, and I won't go into the question itself, but it was one to where it was like, okay, so if, if this were to happen, well, I'll tell you this much of it. Let me, let me back up a little bit. I do want to tell you this much to give you some context. Someone asked me concerning, you know, what if it was proven? What if, someone came, what if I could come and prove to you that there was other life forms in the universe? And this was not a foolish question. It was in a context of a, of a conversation that was being had. So... Normally, I, you know, that kind of question, I would just brush it off, but not in this context. So I said, well, 
And they said, what would, you, what would you do? What if I could prove to you? What if I could? And I, I gave an answer, but then I said this to him. I said, he goes, what, what, if it, what if it were true? What if I came and it was true? What, what, what would that do? What would that do? How would you view that? What would you say? I said, so what? He's like, what do you mean, so what? I said, well, first of all, Scripture doesn't speak to that, so it's not going against the Word of God. So what if it is? So what? I said, second, I said, I have an eternal redemptive view, biblical worldview. So in light of what God has said about fallen mankind, about who he is and who we are in Christ who's been provided for our redemption, it makes no difference to me if there's men on Mars. I don't care. And the fact of the matter is that does not change anything concerning the faith, concerning redemption, concerning Jesus Christ and who he is. Are you following me? That's a simple example, but the point is, so instead of getting into some discussion, I just don't believe that, I don't know. Why even talk? It doesn't, what's it matter? What matters is here we are right now, and this is what we know. There are men who live on earth who are condemned and without Christ, who need redemption. And God has provided redemption in Jesus Christ. So if there are people on Mars, so what? So be it. Now, do I believe that? No, I don't. But what if there were? What's it matter? How does that affect the faith? It doesn't. How does that affect my belief? It doesn't. How does that affect redemption? It doesn't. How does that affect the sufficiency of Jesus Christ? It doesn't. And so just a simple example such as that, not manipulating a conversation, but understanding what is being asked and being able to say, look, here's my answer to that, but that's really irrelevant because we're speaking hypotheticals. Here's what we know. Here's what I know. I live in the flesh in a world that is cursed by sin. And my flesh is sinful. Do we know that? And we know that God has made provision for us in Jesus Christ. Do we know that? And we know that God's provision is all sufficient. What else matters? It doesn't change anything. So no matter what the questions may be, evolution, whatever it may be, whatever comes up, we should be able to take these questions and be able to go to the truth, foundational truth of Scripture and be able to explain redemptively the truth of Scripture in relation to the questions that may be asked. This is what it is truly, because here's the thing. There are those who do not believe in Christ unto salvation, and there are those who do not believe in God at all, or so they claim, professing to not believe that there is a God at all. So what are we to do? We're to be ready to give answer to every man that asketh reason of the hope, the confidence that is within us. Because there are also those who attack from without and those who arise from within who desire to do nothing more than destroy the flock and to propagate perversions of truth. Is that not exactly what Satan did? Did he not pervert the truth? And that's still what is taking place today. So there's an urgency to this defending the faith and there is a need, a necessity to do so because there are those who are against the faith and there are those who even rise up from within the church who are against the faith. Hence, John even spoke of how that they went out from us because they were from among us because they were not of us. We need to be aware. But we need to be rooted and grounded as well that we be ready to give answer and to defend with, with boldness and without exception.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for the confidence we can have because of Jesus Christ and his truth.